Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Good to see everybody. Everybody's got on their nice clothes and they smell good. Everybody took a shower this morning, I think. If you didn't, just keep it on the down low. We won't rat you out. But uh, so good to see everybody here today. And uh, I'm looking forward to Easter um, in a couple of weeks from now, so make sure that you have plans to be here for that. Make sure you have plans to invite somebody you love, somebody you care about, um, to be here with us for Easter service. I know there's some exciting things for the kids planned as well. There's a big old Easter uh, egg hunt afterwards, which means that if parents play their cards right, you can sneak some free candy from your kids, you know, that don't know how to count yet, right? You know, nine eggs, that's, that's how many nine is, and it's like two left, Right. Any parents ever pulled that trick? It's for their own good. They just don't need that much candy. So, you know, we're just helping, helping them out. But we want to say again, welcome to everybody that's here this morning. I'm so glad that you're with us. And last week, uh, we kicked off a, a new series looking at the life of King David, who was an ancient king of Israel and arguably... Uh, the greatest king that, that Israel ever had. And so over the next few lessons, um, starting last week, and then we're going to kind of take a break for Easter. We'll pick it back up afterward. But over these, these few lessons, looking at the life of David, um, we're kind of looking at different episodes in his life that give evidence to that statement that maybe David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. Although today we might be coming in uh, at kind of a different angle. Today we're actually going to be talking about one of his two greatest failures in life. Um, But as we'll see, this happened actually before he was king. And then by the time he had um, come into his kingship, he had kind of learned a lesson. And we're going to see that right at the end of the lesson today. But I think, if I can just kind of say this at the beginning and the outset of the message... As someone who's been a Christian for a really long time, I'm not going to pretend like I've followed Jesus for a really long time. Uh, Any professional Christians know what I'm talking about, but maybe don't want to raise your hand. But as a Christian for quite a few years, I think today's message is really so, so important. I think that this, in studying this and kind of, you know, digging all around this and praying about this message today, I think it applies so much to my life. I can see this in my history and in my past. And, and if you are a new Christian, you can get a hold of this and kind of use it as, as early warning signs and some of the struggles you'll have. If you're a seasoned Christian, or maybe you're a Christian that's just going through something right now, if you can just open up your mind and your heart and ask God to open up your eyes, I think you'll see exactly what I'm talking about this morning, that the, what we're going to talk about is so very important, but it's probably going to be one of the hardest principles or, or ideas or, or you know, set of teachings that we will ever have to apply to our lives. And the reason why it's going to be so hard for us to apply this to our life is because of the conditions that make this message today so important. And basically today, I'm going to give it away right at the front end. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm talking about. And that's this idea that it's hardest to surrender to God's guidance when we're angry, when we're isolated, or when we're afraid. It is absolutely the hardest to do what we might call God's will or or live a Christian life when we are angry, when we're isolated, or when we're afraid. And Christians might call this, again, you know, kind of living the Christian life or walking by faith. We might even use that old-fashioned word submitting to God, which is something that we don't like to really talk about that much. And and maybe you're here and maybe you're not even sure that you'd call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're not sure you're a full-on Christian. You're kind of figuring out your faith and your story and you know where you are and everything. And, but maybe you believe that there's something above us all. There's some kind of guiding principle, some kind of higher power that you know, it, it kind of sets some guardrails, some boundaries for your life, some, kind of prompts you to live according to some guiding principles in your life. So what you might call your guiding principles or your guiding values, what Christians call guidance, uh, God's guidance or God's wisdom or truth, um, God's example or God's ways, it is hardest to stay in line with those things. It is hardest for us to live our lives according to those guides when we are angry, when we're isolated, or when we are afraid. And it's just really true. And there's, you know, these three aren't the only three, but I think that these three probably cover a lot of the territory that we've experienced in our life. When we're feeling overwhelmed by anger, when we're feeling kind of cut off from everybody else and, and anyone that we would, re- we would respect or love or any voice that we would want to speak into our lives, when we're afraid because you know, the decision's really big or what hangs in the balance 
of our actions is, is just really big. It's during those moments that we can look at God's ways and we can think, you know, that might work for some of the people some of the time, but I don't think that's going to work for me right now. Maybe we would even say, that even worked for me last week or last month or last year, but this is different. This is special, and, and you know, they must really not understand what I'm facing, or they would not have even asked me to consider that as an option because I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling isolated, or maybe I'm feeling if afraid. And these three emotions, and really they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're emotions, but they're more than emotions. It's circumstances, it's, it's situations, it's just, it's trouble and calamity and all of these things that come again. We might call it trials in life. All of these things, they have the potential, these three monsters right here, these three giants have the potential to undermine the most dedicated and the most disciplined and the most devoted among us as Christians. And these three, these three conditions right here, these will make us bust through our moral boundaries. These will take us into area and territory that we thought we would never go into again. These three things will make us kind of break through the ethical uh, guardrails that we have set up in our lives. Because of these, I, I really believe this, I really mean this, because of these three or some derivative of these three things, we'll crash through guardrails that we've set up relationally, crash through guardrails that we have set up physically or emotionally or spiritually most certainly, right, or financially even, or maybe even in our professional lives. In fact, if we look back at some of the greatest regrets in our life, like if we were to take the time and pass the microphone around the room and you were to stand up and say, okay, I want to share with everybody else, you know, the greatest failure in my life, chances are it would start out somewhere along the lines of, you know, there was this time when I was feeling really, really angry. There was this time when there was something I knew I shouldn't have done, but I did it anyway. There was something I knew I should have just kept my mouth shut, and I didn't, and I said it, and it caused a wreck. You know, you felt alone maybe or cut off and you opened up to something or maybe you felt alone and so you opened up to someone and you knew, you knew how it was going to turn out or maybe you were just scared, scared of, scared of your future and what it held or scared of your future because it didn't hold something that you thought that you would need. Maybe you were scared of your past and the reason the reason that these three things are so big, these three giants uh, have such potential to kind of undermine our faith and our trust in God is because when we face fear and when we face isolation and, and when we face our anger, we don't feel like we can just sit still and let things be as they are. We feel like we need to do something about it. I've got to act. I've got to change this. We're almost like in a panic, right? Like, I, I don't know what to do, but I know I need to do something. I think I need to do something. i got to come up with something because I can't just leave things as they are. Anybody ever been like that? Just like I, you're in such a, a trouble, such a trial, such a crisis of faith where it's like, I don't know if I can live like this anymore. And so we'll do just about anything, but most often we'll do the wrong thing. We'll do what comes to us by our natural instinct, or maybe we'll do what seems easiest or what's maybe most obvious for us to do. But when we act because something is driving us to this panic, come on, we all know this. It does not usually lead us to, to end up you know, making things better from our actions. We usually end up making things worse, right? We don't end up with less regret. We end up with more regret. Things don't get less complicated. Things get more complicated, and we end up angrier. We end up aloneer. We end up scareder. Can I hear an amen from anybody that's ever experienced an er? Right? And the reason that I can say this to a room full of people and, and see a bunch of people nodding their heads in agreement is because this is a people thing. You're in church today, but this isn't even a Christian thing. This is a people thing. We all experience this, right? And, and we're all people, and King David, we're looking at his life, he was a people too. And, and David had two really huge failures in his life. And, and, and lucky for David, he was a king, so people wrote down everything that he did. So all of his failures are made public, and they're on record for us to look at forever. Yay, David, right? One of those failures David is famous for, and I mean, it's a doozy. It happened when David was in his 50s. It happened after he was king. But the one that we're going to look at today happened in David's early 20s, and it's not really so well known, and, and yet it's one of the most tragic. It's one of the most horrific, uh, terrible stories in all the Bible, and that's where we're going to go today. Now, last week, we looked in on David. We kind of started paying attention to him when he was a 15-year-old boy. 
when David walked down into the valley of Elah and onto the pages of history as the giant killer, 15 years old, and everybody knows his name. He's like the Jonas Brothers or Jake from State Farm. He's just like, everybody knows about David. They're writing songs about him. Kids want to be him. There were broken windows all over Israel because little boys started practicing with their slingshots. Little girls put David posters all over their room, and King Saul, he knew that David was gaining in popularity, and he's the first king. King Saul was the first king of Israel. David was the second king of Israel, but he realizes that this kid has fame, and, and this kid has influence, and so in Saul's heart, there were planted these seeds of jealousy and, and envy and even fear, and they started to take root. Now, and this is the thing about Saul. He was really, really insecure. And probably part of the reason he was insecure is because they chose him to be king because he was the tallest. That was his qualification. He's the tallest guy here. So he gets to wear the crown, right? And, and history starts to show from, from really from last week in that episode and, and on that Saul was also incredibly, incredibly insecure. And with Goliath, Saul was shown to not be the protector that Israel wanted. And now it looked like this boy man, David, was what everybody wanted instead. And so Saul comes up with a plan. He's going to try and control things. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter 18, from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And then he goes a step further and he tries to pull 15-year-old David into the family. And he offers his older daughter, his oldest daughter, older daughter, older daughter in marriage. To, Dave, to a 15-year-old boy. And David's like, well, thank you, Saul. You know, like he's still trying to figure out puberty. And he's offered all of a sudden to be married to a princess. And he's like, no, it's, it's, not, it's not time. And, and then my family's not connected enough. We don't deserve this honor. I cannot accept your, your offer because my family does not deserve to be connected to the royal family. Wow, what an incredible attitude that this young boy would consider him, would be so humble that he would say, no, 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 I'm not even worthy to marry a princess. And everybody loved David even more because of that, right? Who turns down being married to a princess? Who turns down becoming part of the royal family? David does. And then over the, next, the course of the next seven years, because of what he had done, he actually gets a contingent of men that serve under him. David becomes a, con a commander of a small contingent of men. And, and, and they, they do you know, amazing things for the army of Israel, for the nation of Israel. And what happens is Saul, he did this on purpose. He didn't do this because he really trusted David. But what Saul started doing is he gave him a few men to go out with him. And actually, it wasn't that small, we think. But in those days, it was relatively small. He had these thousand men that went out with David. But then he would send David on impossible missions. From 15 to 22 years old, David was a commander of this small force. And he would be sent by Saul on these crazy endeavors in the name of the king. And Saul was putting him in situations that, hoping that David would be killed off. He would put him in situations where his small force was supposed to be overrun and overwhelmed. But David kept on winning time and time and time again against impossible odds. David keeps on winning with his small band of men. And David's reputation grows greater and greater. Well, Saul had another daughter, a younger daughter. Her name was Michael, I think is how you pronounce it, but I prefer to call her Michelle. So we'll just go with that. Michelle, she has David posters all over her room, right? And, and David sees her one day and falls in love with her. And he still sees himself as a nobody, though. And he's thinking, I can't marry the king's daughter. I have no money. And I still have no family status. And I still have no money. And I'm broke. And I have no money. And so I can't marry the king's daughter, you know. And, but everybody knows that David wants to marry Michelle. They want to get together. And, and, and Saul thinks, well, now this is my, my perfect chance to, to get rid of David. And so he gives him one of the most, you know, viciously humorous escapades in all the Bible. And I was going to share it with you this morning. But, you know, just thought maybe you should probably read that one on your own. There's a... A hundred of something David has to get, and you can go find this on your own in 1 Samuel 18, 19. It's, you'll like that story. But David goes out and he does it, and not only does he get a hundred of something, now you really want to know what it is, don't you? Go read for yourself. I can't say it over the pulpit. It's just, God bless them back in those times. Thank goodness I didn't have to do that to marry Chelsea. Thank you, Narda, for not requiring that of me, or else I'd still be single. But David goes out, and he not only gets a hundred of that thing, he gets 200 
and comes out and there's a verse that says he counts them off before the king, which is just had to be one of the most awkward and funny moments in all the Bible. You really need to read it for yourself. But David is always, always winning. So much winning. David has. And Saul feels more and more threatened. And now David is Saul's son-in-law. And so then David, you know, he gets, Saul calls David into the throne room because Saul is just like tormented in his mind. And he says, hey, David, you play the harp, right? You're like one of the Jonas brothers, only more manly. Like, come in and, and play the harp for me, you know? And so David comes in, and David's an amazing songwriter slash musician, right? I mean, he's just, he can do it all. He's a renaissance man, right? And, and while David's sitting there playing the harp, Saul is sitting on the, the throne there in the throne room, and he, he picks up the javelin next to the throne and hurls it at David, and it just barely misses David and sticks into the wall, and tries, Saul's trying to pin David to the wall, and David jumps up, and he runs out of the room, and, and now he realizes, you know, I kind of felt this way before, but now I'm pretty sure my crazy father-in-law is trying to kill me, trying to kill me. And then, you know, David's, he's on the run now, and Saul tries to openly have David arrested. But then it just seems like every time there's a trap for David, David somehow, like every single time, David, you know, he escapes the trap. And how does he get away every single time? And then Saul finds out, Jonathan, my own son, Jonathan, the next in line to the throne, Jonathan, and Michelle, my daughter, David's wife, they are helping David elude my grasp. And man, family dinner time, it turns ugly. It's just awkward. It is so nasty in the, in the dining room. And, and one night they come together, and, and we see this in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 20. One night they're there gathered around the king's table, and Saul notices David doesn't show up again. Duh, right? And he asks Jonathan, where's David, the son of Jesse? How come he hasn't, he hasn't been to dinner tonight? He wasn't here last night. You know, where in the world is David? And what nobody says to Saul, which just blows my mind, nobody says to Saul, well, um, maybe it's because you keep trying to throw a javelin through his heart. You know, like, I don't know. Like, maybe. Maybe it's because you keep trying to have him arrested. Just throwing that out there. I know it's wild to think that, but Jonathan, he doesn't say that. He covers for David. He says, well, David wanted to go on a family trip to Bethlehem, and things have been rough lately, so I let him go. And Saul explodes at Jonathan. So angry. His, his anger and his isolation and his fear is causing Saul to act in these ways. And he explodes at Jonathan, 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him, Look, I, you shouldn't let your kids read the Bible by themselves. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Mm, almost cussed in church. Eyebrows, eyebrows go up. Soup spoons clank against the bowls. And, and like, it doesn't say it, but like, was Jonathan's mom sitting there? Like, I mean, that had to be so awkward, right? I mean, and Saul, he, he goes on and he says, Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your no good mama? See you, you're rebelling against your father. I think it's not really clear here, but I think Saul may have had some marriage issues. Seems like everybody in the Old Testament had marriage issues, and I think they had so many marriage issues because they had so many marriages. Like anytime you live in a culture where you can have a favorite wife, I'm pretty sure that you're going to have marriage issues, right? And, and he goes on and he tells Jonathan in verse 31, he says, as long as the sun, it's not working, Zach, help me out. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you, Jonathan, nor your kingdom. See, Jonathan's the next in line. Jonathan's going to be on the throne after Saul. Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Jonathan, I'm looking out for you. Jonathan, I'm on your side, trying to twist the narrative, trying to control the story. If we let him live, you're never going to be king. And Jonathan, I just don't want that to happen to you. So I'm throwing my javelin for you, son. I'm trying to have him thrown in jail just for you. And Jonathan thinks, man, this is bad. Dad's never been this angry. He's called mom a lot of names. He never said that one before. He goes and he finds David and he says, David, this is bad. You got to skip town. Not only do you got to skip town, David, you got to leave the whole country. David, my father's worried about legacy and my father's insecure. And he's worried about you taking over. David, he's going to kill you. 
David, a soldier of Saul, captain of Saul's own bodyguard, the son-in-law of the king, suddenly on the run. 22 years old, and he's homeless. 22 years old, and suddenly he's afraid of his father-in-law, the king, afraid he won't live to be 23. 22 years old, suddenly he's cut off from his own family, can't see his wife, can't see his mom or his dad or his brothers or visit the home ranch, cut off from his fellow warriors, cut off from his countrymen and his soldier brothers that may have sided with him and helped him. 22 years old, and he's starting to get a little angry. This is the man I fought to protect. This is the man I've gone out and done everything he told me to do. I'm not a mercenary. I'm not a rogue. Everything that I have done is for the king. I've always done the right thing. Everything that I've done has always been for God and for God's people. And we would later learn he was a man after God's own heart. But suddenly David, at 22 years old, finds himself isolated and afraid. And he's starting to get a little bit angry at everything that's going on. And so David does what we do when we're angry and when we're isolated and when we're afraid. David panics. I'm not sure what to do, but I know I need to do something. And so David decides to take matters into his own hands. And he, he had lost sight of something that's so hard for us to imagine. We know the end of the story. We know that David eventually becomes king, right? I gave it away in the title. There's no cliffhanger here. We know where everything's going, and knowing the end of everything makes us ask, David, why would you do what you're about to do? David, why in the world would you panic if God is still God? I mean, I know Saul is, is tall, but he's not nine and a half feet tall. God just used you to kill the giant like two pages ago. Why are you running? Why are you about to abandon your morals? Why are you about to let your ethics slip? And, and there, here's the thing. There are people watching us right now, and they're wondering the same thing about us. Why would you do that? Why would you run from the presence of God? Why would you run from God's will for your life? Why would you compromise yourself over that? Why are you afraid of that? Isn't God still God? Didn't God call you? Didn't God save you? Why are you sacrificing your values and your integrity simply because you're afraid? Mm. In fact, we don't even need other people to talk to us like this, do we? Ourselves. We, we, you know, we put a little space, a little time between us and something that's happened in our life, and, and we ask ourselves, what was I thinking? We ask ourselves, why? Did I do that? Why did I call him? Why did I call her back? Why did I spend that? Why did I buy that? Why did I say yes to that? Why did I start doing that again? Why did I stop doing that when it had brought me so much peace and so much comfort and so much confidence before? And the thing is, our failures, David's failure, it's a pattern. It's something predictable because we're all human. Because this isn't just a Christian thing, it's a people thing. It's how we all act and how we respond when we're scared, when we're isolated, or when we get angry. We act out of panic and emotion and frustration. David panics, just like you and I have panicked before. And he goes to a village called Nob. And here's the thing about Nob and that village. In that time, when we're reading the story at this time, rather, they didn't have the city of Jerusalem yet. And the permanent tabernacle or, or temple was not built. It was still a tabernacle, which means it was basically a portable church. And what they would do is they would look at all their enemies and their borders and decide, where's the safest place within our territory? Okay, that's where we're going to put the tabernacle because the tabernacle has the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence. And so the Ark and the high priests and, and all of the religious things would be with the tabernacle. And right now the tabernacle was in a village called Nob. And David goes there to see the high priest named Ahimelech. And Ahimelech knows David. And, and this is strange when David shows up because David usually travels with a thousand warriors. But David shows up, but you know, he's alone. He's a little wide-eyed and, and out of breath. And he comes to Ahimelech, and, and David's like, you know, or Ahimelech's like, David, what's, what's going on? Why are you alone? And David, because he's scared, because he's feeling cut off from all of his safety and everything that was comfortable, because he's, he's mad at what's going on, David starts the whole thing off with a lie. 
Now, David, why are you lying? We know from last week, David loved God's laws. When no other king seemed to like the law, David liked the laws. The Ten Commandments are in a box right behind Ahimelech. Why would David lie? He knows it's wrong. The answer is he would lie because he's afraid, and he's isolated, and he's scared. He's mad at how everything's turning out, and suddenly doing things God's way is not really an option that David is considering. Can I hear an amen from somebody? And David says to Ahimelech, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission. Oh, and my men, as for my men, well, I told them to go on ahead, you know, and meet me at a certain place. It's such a bad lie, right? You can tell David's not very good at lying. I mean, like, give some of us a chance to set up a lie. Like, we'd we'd have all this figured out. But he's worried that if Ahimelech knows that he's alone, he's not going to help David. And so he lies to Ahimelech and gets Ahimelech to help him. And this lie would end up costing Ahimelech and his family their lives, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But it's not so obvious at this moment in David's panic. And we kind of get that, right? Because when we first panic and we first do something, it's not always so obvious at the beginning exactly what our panic is going to cost us later. And so David asks Ahimelech, Now then, well, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. And Ahimelech scratching his head like, David, this is, so, this is so strange. You're here and your men are not here, but they're close by. And, and, you know, and you're nervous and you're acting weird. You're on a secret mission nobody knows about, but at least a thousand guys in their family know what's going on, presumably. And then you don't even have provisions. You don't even have food. And, and you're going to feed you and a thousand men? What in the world is five loaves going to do for you? you know? and, and he goes, the priest answered, David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand, but there is some consecrated bread here. See, the consecrated bread, only the religious people were supposed to eat. David wasn't supposed to have it. His men weren't supposed to have it at that point. There was a ritual and a ceremony they had to go through to eat the consecrated bread. And David's like, yeah, I know the rules. He lies again. We're good with the rules. We consecrated ourselves. Give me the bread. And if you're here, if you're here last week, you're probably wanting to raise your hand like I was as I was reading the story. Like, wait a minute. Where's the David that killed Goliath last week? Where's the David that said, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long, even at dinner time. Like, where's that David? How come he's not in the story? What happened to you, God, are my refuge, and I turn to you in times of trouble? Where is that David? And then the story gets weirder. David asks Ahimelech, hey, don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because, you know, the king's mission was so urgent. I just, I ran out of the house. I only had the clothes on my back and my, my khakis, you know, Jake from State Farm. Like that. I, did, I forgot my sword. I didn't even get to pick that up. And then this is, this is so amazing. Look, we're, we're looking at this story from 30,000 feet up. We're, we know the end from the beginning. We can see the whole episode, and it's such an obvious clue what happens next. We want to, like, shout into the story, like, David, pay attention. God's trying to get your attention, just like the people who love us want to shout at us sometimes. Pay attention. The priest replied, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed, David, in the valley of Elah, it's here. If you want it, take it. There is no sword but that one. And see, if this is a movie, this is where it goes to slow motion, right? This is a movie. This is where it cuts to the, the sequence, and it zooms in on Ahimelech's hand, Ahimelech's hand as he reaches for that. It zooms in on David's face as he gets the realization of what it is that Ahimelech is picking up and handing to David. This is where David should have been shaken out of his confusion. This is where David should have been shaken out of all of his fear, where he should have fallen to his knees in repentance and said, what was I thinking? It's where David should have fallen to his knees and said, God, what am I doing here? How did it come to this? I never should have doubted you as he holds the sword of Goliath in his hands, right? The only weapon here, David, is the one that you use to become the David that we know in love. The only sword here, David, is the one that was such a milestone in your life that we sing songs about you now. It's the reason little boys have slingshots and little girls have posters of you in their room. The reason you're a hero, it's the sign, it's a symbol of God's favor on your life. 
And David takes that sword and that reminder of God's favor. It should have just, it just struck him down to his knees with all of the emotion tied to that sword. That day that he went there, the, the faith that he needed to overcome the fear that was coming up into his throat to choke him, the, the armies all around and the giant in front, and the victory that he won in the name of the Lord, the vindication and, and the whirlwind journey. And, and after all of that, David had taken the sword, you know, after the episode with Goliath, David had taken the sword and given it to the high priest as a praise offering to God. He had given it to God as a symbol. I want to acknowledge that it wasn't really me that killed the giant. It was you, that God, it may have been my hand that held the sword, but it was your favor that brought about the victory. What happened to that David? What happened to that 15-year-old clear-eyed shepherd boy, right, who trusted God so completely that he stared down a giant? And what happened to David is that he was now facing three more giants that we have all faced at different times in our life. He was under the shadow of anger. He was under the shadow of his own isolation. He was under the shadow of his own fear and anger and isolation and fear. They make us forget about all of the giants that God has used us to slay before. And anger and isolation and fear they make us forget just how far we've come, or rather I should say, just how far God has brought us. And they make us forget about his favor. They rob us of the trust in God that we have gained from our past victories, that we have gained from the times before when we were afraid and, and isolated and angry and, and God was still God then, but we can't see it. We can't get past these huge giants that have again come to it. And it's the same three giants. But they block our view, and they keep us from remembering God's goodness in our lives. And, and even while David is holding this incredible reminder of God's favor, the, the sword of Goliath, verses 9 and 10, David said, there is none like it, give it to me. And that day, David ran. He fled. He ran away. He tricked Ahimelech into helping him, and then David ran away. And the thing is, again, there we are in the story. That's us. This is the story behind our greatest failure in life. This is the story behind why we used to be Christians and then we weren't for a really long time. And this will be the blueprint for our future failures as well. If there ever comes a moment again when you stop believing, when you stop having faith, when you stop surrendering your life to the will of God, it will come in a moment of anger or isolation or a moment of pure fear at your future. All while we hold reminders of God's grace in our hands. Forgiveness held in our hands. Hello. The status that we have, the righteousness that has been credited to our lives and our hearts, we hold in our hands and our hearts. It's driven our praise. It's caused us to lift our hands and sing his name and say his name. Facing anger and facing isolation, facing our fears. We just, we just can't see it anymore. And it's in times like this, when we need God most, that we are least likely to lean in God's direction. It's in moments like this, when we need to surrender to God's will the most because we're just, we're confused. We're not sure. We're not certain of the direction, right? And yet we run from God's confusing sovereignty. We run from God's favor and the fact that God has brought us this far. And we run right into the messes of our own making. And what's interesting is it's so easy to see this in other people, isn't it? You have friends right now. You have family right now making decisions that you know they're going to turn out bad for them. And if you could, you would tell them, listen, you're just afraid, but you need to trust God. Listen, you're feeling alone, but you just need to remember who promised to never leave you or forsake you. If you could, you would say to them, listen, you need to get over your anger because there is a peace that can pass all understanding. You're thinking you're going to regret that. You're thinking that's going to leave a mark, right? Come on, somebody. But what's easy to see in others is almost impossible to see in the mirror. 
Because we're so focused on the giants that are looming over us. We're so overwhelmed by the flood of anger. We're paralyzed by the fear. and We think we don't have options because we're alone and we can't hear anybody else's voice talking to us. And we're convinced this is my problem. And no one else has ever had this problem. And no one else has ever gone through what I'm going through. No one else has ever been this afraid. No one else has ever been this alone. And you convince yourself just like I have convinced myself before that nobody else can understand what I'm going through right now. And then it gets worse. We as Christians, we trick ourselves into thinking this, that if God were really with me, this wouldn't be happening to me. God's good, and so, you know, if there are bad things happening, then God must not be here with me. And the point of David's story and the point of all of this, you know, this morning is to remind us of what we already know, that it might be easy to sing how great is our God when things are going great, right? It's easy to lift up our hands and and sing his name and give him praise when everything's coming up sunshine, but let a little storm cloud block the light for a moment, let a little rain fall, let a little circumstance threaten what we have, let something put us on the run from where we are comfortable, and all of a sudden we begin to question God. We begin to doubt God's goodness, as if God is good but at sometimes cannot be good. God is good all the time. It does not matter what I see, it does not matter what I feel or what I experience. If my trust is in a good God, then I know that whatever it is that is hurting me right now, he's working it out for my good. I wish I could tell somebody this morning what you see and what you hear and what you sense in this natural body. It's a lie. The truth is what God says. The truth is what God is. There is no other truth. Anything that contradicts his truth is not a truth. That's why he said, let God be true and every man a liar. So David, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. It's crazy. David takes Goliath's sword, and he, since he has to leave his own country, he has to go to another country. Well, guess which country he goes to? He goes to Goliath's country. He goes to the Philistines' country. Good move, David. Take the sword of a famous Philistine that you killed and go to that country. And then when you get there, David, like buy a map at one of the gas stations on the outskirts and, you know, find a city to go to. And David, head for that city. And guess which city in the Philistine country David goes to? The city of Gath. Want to know who else was from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. Yeah, you guys know the story. Right? And then, I mean, this is crazy. David goes to the the king of the Philistines, and he tells him, look, I'm on the run from Saul, and he's standing actually outside the gates, and they wouldn't let him in because they know who he is. This is David. This is the giant killer. David says, look, I I know who you know who. I know that you know that I know that you know who I am. But I want to fight with you. I want to fight for you. I'm going to fight against Saul. And the servants tell, tell the king, don't buy it. David is not who he says he is. This is just a trick. He's just trying to gain entrance so that David can kill even more of us, and they won't let him in the gates. Well, now David's really scared because he knows that if they're keeping him outside the gates, they're probably inside the gates getting a force together to come out and surround him. Now David's really in a panic because he's really isolated. Not even his enemies want him anymore. Now he's starting to really get mad, and he panics and thinks, you know, they're going to kill me unless they think that I'm crazy. And so David takes his nails and starts scratching at the wooden gates. Can you imagine that? Like, think of nails on a chalkboard. This is nails on, can you imagine, like, the, the wood ripping a nail back and the splinters going into his fingers? Leaving blood marks down the wall. And you see, he has a big, full beard, you know, I wish like mine, but it was a lot bigger than mine. And, and, and he lets drool and spit start, you know, just like foaming up in his beard. And he starts acting crazy and looking like a rabid dog. And, and they, they kind of look at him and they think, look, is this really the giant killer? Seven years later, and look what happened. Look what's happened to the man who killed our champ. Anybody ever had things go from bad to worse so you just start acting a fool? <laughs> David's acting a fool. He pretends he's gone insane and he runs away. And at 22 years old, he goes and he lives in a cave and he's homeless and he's afraid and he's isolated. But he's starting to get a little angry. This isn't how things were supposed to go. I'm God's champion, I'm God's 
hero. Until one day, finally, David comes to his senses. Finally, he leans in God's direction. And he goes to a priest in his country. And he finds a priest. And he asks the priest to pray for him. David does finally what he should have done from the beginning. And he asks the priest to pray for him. He asks the priest to ask God for direction for David. And then David learns the disastrous, disastrous, horrific consequences of his own actions. But they weren't consequences on himself. And this is so tragic. This is so tragic. And you have to hear this this morning. I'm telling you this, as I began to study this message, this began to hit home to my heart because I've seen this happen in my own life. These are not consequences that fell on David, but they are consequences that fell on others around David. See, when David went to Ahimelech the first time, Saul's superintendent of shepherds just happened to be there. And he saw David go into Ahimelech. And he saw David come out with bread and the sword of Goliath. And when David was running to Gath, Doeg was this guy's name. I think it was really Doug, but they misspelled it. But Doeg goes to Saul and he tells Saul, I know where David is. He didn't know David had left yet. I know where David is. He's with Ahimelech. And Ahimelech has given him food and he's helping him. And 1 Samuel 22, verses 9 and 10, Doeg saw, I said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Adnab. And Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. And he also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Ahimelech has prayed for David and he gave him food. And Saul, he even gave your enemy a weapon. And Saul is furious. And Saul calls for Ahimelech. And Saul calls for all of the male members of his family. And he says to Ahimelech, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. And Ahimelech's like, whoa, 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 Saul, this is your son-in-law I helped here. He said he was on a mission from you. He's the captain of your own bodyguard. What do you mean that he's your enemy? Like, shouldn't you at least demote him if that's the case? I don't know anything about what you're telling me of right here. But the king said to him, you will surely die Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Saul's scared. Saul's feeling cut off from his own family, his own son, his own daughter, and now from his priest. Saul is getting mad. And so he tells the soldiers to kill him, but the soldiers are watching Saul self-destruct. They can see it. It's not them. They're on the outside. And they tell Saul, we'll kill your enemies. We'll kill prisoners of war. We'll kill those that are condemned to death by our laws, but we won't kill the priests. And Doeg, the superintendent of shepherds, thinks this is a moment when I can get in the king's good graces. And so Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And as horrifying as that much slaughter is, it wasn't even the worst of it. David's actions weren't even confined to Ahimelech and all of the male members of his family. But the story goes on and tells us that Doeg also put to the sword the whole village of Nob, the town of the priests with its men, its women, its children, its infants, cattle, donkeys, sheep. Because David took matters into his own hands. Because David panicked when he was afraid. Because David panicked when he was isolated. He went somewhere he never should have gone. He had a conversation he never should have had. He did what he never should have done because of fear, because of isolation, because of anger. One of Ahimelech's sons, he escaped Doeg, and he runs to David. He tells him what happened, and David makes his confession in verse 22. Then David said to Abiathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew. It isn't that us. I knew that was going to happen. I knew things were going to end up like this. I knew what was at stake, and I should have seen this coming. I knew this wasn't going to turn out right. I knew I was going to end up with more regret, not less regret. I knew, I knew, I knew that it was going to happen. And David says, I knew that he would be sure to tell Saul, and I am responsible for the death of your whole family because of what he had done, taking matters into his own hands just like we take matters into our own hands. And we do the first thing that comes to mind. We do what seems obvious. 
We do what seems easiest. We do what's right in front of us. But doing what looks good doesn't always turn out to be for the good for any of us. And the thing is, this story right here, it's our story. It's the reason that we have the regrets we have. It's the reason that we have lived and are living with the brokenness that we're living with right now. It's the reason of our greatest pain. It's, it's the story of our biggest regret. It's the blueprint of our future failures. We've all had moments when our anger pushed us to do what we knew we should not do. When in anger, we have opened our mouth and spit out vomit onto somebody that we know we should have just kept our mouth shut. I never should have said that. We felt alone and we felt like nobody understands. We felt like nobody sees what I'm going through. And suddenly we're fantasizing about things that we would tell other people they have no business keeping in their, their minds or their hearts. But suddenly it's an option for us. All because we're angry. All because we're feeling isolated. And all because we're afraid. These things are so giant. They're so massive. And they will undermine your faith and they will undermine your dedication and your devotion to God because they block our vision and we can't see. And we lose clarity and we lose perspective and it makes us forget things that we should remember even when we're holding the reminders of God's grace in our hands. Even though we are living lives that are being put back together by grace and miracles and mercy. Can I hear an amen from someone? We know that we're not what we used to be, and I'm not yet what I'm going to be by the grace of God, but I already can see where God has brought me, what God has done for me. I'm living in the grace of God now, but when I'm faced with anger and isolation and fear, I can't see the grace of God. All I can see is the option that's right in front of me. All I can see is this panic. All I can feel is that I can't let things stay like they are, and I've got to reach out and do something even while we hold the reminders of God's grace in our hands. God, help us. God, give us clarity, we pray. Before we move on, come on, can we pause and take a moment and all over this room right now, can you just begin to ask God to give us clarity? Come on, can you begin to ask God to remove the things that are standing between you and seeing his grace and his mercy this morning? Jesus, we need you. Jesus, don't let us fall victim. After killing some of our biggest giants, don't let us fall victim to these new things, these three things. The anger that would try and overwhelm us. The isolation would try and make us feel like nobody understands what we're going through. The fear that robs us of faith. Fear, God, is, is the enemy of our trust in you. Help us to understand it. Help us to trust in you completely, no matter the evidence of our circumstances. In Jesus' name, we pray. In just a moment, I'm going to open the altar and ask them to come and sing for us, and we're all going to come close around the front. But before we do, I just like I said, I think that looking at my own life, I see my failures, and I see my struggles in this, and, and I wanted to kind of give us some practical things this morning that we could do, and some practical, really just practical questions to ask ourselves. And, but it's, it, it's hard when you're angry to pause and, and ask yourself these things. It's hard. When you're feeling so alone, it's, it's hard to deal with it. It's hard to admit it, isn't it? Any, any veteran Christians know what I'm talking about. That in the moments that we need God the most, we're the least likely to lean in God's direction. The moments when we're, we need God the most to take over our hearts and our minds and change the way we think, like it's in those moments we just kind of default to our old selves. But there are three things that we can ask ourselves, I think. Zach, if you can go on with the next question. What is your loneliness, your anger, or your fear causing you to consider that you would never consider when things are good? When your marriage is good, what would you never consider when your marriage is in a storm? When you have enough in the bank and you're not really worried about that, what would you never, ever consider doing? When you're facing that relationship that's just got so much tension and so much anger, and I mean, you just, you want to get revenge, you want to get even, you want to let them know, you want to give them a piece of your mind. Hello, you got to be careful how many pieces of your mind you give away, right? When things are good in that relationship, what would you never consider doing? When you love them and felt that love for them at its highest, what would you never, ever consider doing? And then, I mean, you know, 
Maybe it's, it's a habit or behavior. Maybe it's something that you spent months and maybe years getting over. Maybe it's something you spent money trying to get past, right? And suddenly it's an option again. Whatever you're considering. I want to ask you, have you ever seen it work out for anybody? Come on, what are you considering doing that when things are good you never would have considered doing? Now here's another question that the story of David makes us ask ourselves, and this is so tragic. Who beside you do you risk hurting by your decision? See, this is the one that we don't often think about. Who beside you do you risk hurting by your decision? See, we think about ourselves. We think how we're feeling. We think what we're facing and what we're struggling with. But who beside you is going to be hurt by your decision? The thing is, we already know the answer to this question. It's everyone you love. It's everyone who loves you. Some of us already, this is the thing, some of us already know what this is like from the other side. Your dad never could control his anger, and you've been dealing with that ever since. Your mom felt isolated and maybe depressed, and it was so deep that she turned to things that she hoped would be an answer, and you've been wrestling with those things ever since. Who beside you do you risk hurting by your decision? Who else's future hangs in the balance if you explode in your anger? If you panic in your isolation, if you run to something or to someone on an impulse to cope with your fear. And finally this morning, I want to ask you this. What advice would you give someone you love if they were in your shoes? What would you tell somebody else, right? Because it's really easy to see all of this happening when it's happening to someone else. It's so easy to see, and you can predict their future, right? But Sometimes we can't seem to predict our own. And then later on we say, I knew this would happen and I should have seen this coming, right? What would you tell someone else? What would you hope someone else would tell you? Years later, after David became Israel's second king, David wrote this in Psalm chapter 9. He said, the Lord is a refuge. See, I think David wished he could go back in time and tell his 22-year-old self this. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. See, we don't really understand this in Western civilization, living in California in 2019, but I I think in our present world, anybody heard of the refugee camps happening over in the Middle East? People that are driven from their homes, people whose homes have been destroyed, have nowhere to run, and they run to a refugee camp. And in the refugee camp, it's not really the rebuilding, but it's that place where they can take a breath and take count and take stock of what's going on and turn and look for a path forward. The Lord is your refuge. Run to Him. Give it to Him. Let Him be that moment. Let Him be that space where you pause and just, God, you can give me clarity to what I'm facing. You can give me a path to rebuilding what's been broken, what's been destroyed. He said, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. This old-time word, stronghold, again, we don't get it living in California in 2019. This is like a bomb shelter back then before they had bombs. It's where everybody would run, and it was impenetrable. No danger could come in. He's saying the Lord is your stronghold. The Lord is who you run to. He would go on and say in verse 10, those who know your name, talking to God, those who know your name, trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.